We're in part 22 of our King series. If you're new or you haven't been around for a while, what we've been doing throughout this year is we have gone through and we've been studying a bunch of different Old Testament kings, mostly in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And what we've been doing is we've we've studied a bunch of really great kings, we've studied a bunch of not so great kings, and we've studied a bunch of really complicated kings. And kind of the question we've been asking throughout this series is just the question of who's the king of your life? Because whoever the king of your life is, that's going to make a difference in ways both really overt and really subtle. And we've said that throughout the series, the goal is not that we would emulate any of these earthly kings, but rather that these earthly kings would help us understand what does it mean to to more fully follow our true king, and that's Jesus. And throughout this series, what we've done is we've, like I said, mostly been in these books of Kings and Chronicles, but there have been a few parts in this series where we've just taken one week to talk about a minor prophet who is, who is writing during some of the time periods that we've been studying. So uh, several weeks ago, I joked that I got to preach to you the best and worst sermon you've ever heard out of the book of Obadiah, right? Because who's ever heard a sermon out of the book of Obadiah? We did that. Well, just last week, Pastor Lance preached to you the best and worst sermon you've ever heard out of the book of Nahum. And this morning, I have the opportunity to preach the best and worst sermon you've ever heard out of the book of Zephaniah. So yes, that is in the Bible. So Zephaniah is where we're going to be this morning. So if you have a Bible or you're using the Bible underneath the seat in front of you, invite you to go there. It is on page 788 on the Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. If you're using your own Bible, Just use the table of contents and save yourself the headache. Trust me on this one. Zephaniah chapter 1 is where we're going to be. And what I want to do is I'm going to read just chapter 1, verse 1, and then we'll kind of set some historical context, and then we'll we'll get rolling here. So so here's what it says. Page 788 in the Bible's underneath the seat in front of you. Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Amon, king of Judah. All right, let's close in prayer. I've pronounced all those names. That's all I got for you. (laughs) So here's what we learned. We learned that Zephaniah is writing during the time of a king named Josiah. Now, just to again set some context for you, in the 8th century BC, we have the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. In the 8th century BC, the northern kingdom is conquered by the Assyrians, and we know that 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 was an act of God's judgment for Israel's disobedience. So all that's left is the southern kingdom. And as the southern kingdom is still there, they don't learn from the example of Israel. And they get led off into all sorts of different directions away from God. They're led by some terrible leaders. Pastor Parnell preached to us about the king Manasseh who led Judah in pagan worship, false worship, away from the worship of God. He was one of several leaders who just for decades led the nation poorly. And he repented by the end of his life, but by the end of his life, he had so poorly led his people that pagan worship was happening throughout the land of Judah. And following Manasseh was a king named Amon, and he was so bad that he was killed by his own servants after a couple of years. And then in 640 BC, a king named Josiah takes the throne. And if you were here about a month ago, I got to do that teaching where we talked about King Josiah. And King Josiah, first of all, he took the throne at age eight, so... That's the thing he did. Uh, And then what the Bible tells us is that eight years into his reign, I mean, he was a king that was set up to fail. Judah had been led so poorly 
There's this such, there was so much false worship. There was so much dedication to foreign gods. He was set up to fail if there ever was someone set up to fail. But we learn that eight years into his reign, it says that he starts getting drawn to the God of his father, David. That he starts getting drawn back to the God of Israel. And we learn that four years later, 12 years into his reign, he starts to cleanse the land of all of the foreign idols and statues and symbols of foreign worship that were all over the land of Judah. And then we learn it's 18 years into his reign. Second Chronicles 34 de details this, that what they're doing is they're cleaning and cleansing the temple. Even the temple where God was meant to be worshiped, the temple was full of all of these pagan statues and symbols. So they were cleansing the temple, cleaning it out so that God could rightly be worshiped. And Second Chronicles 34 tells us about a priest named Hilkiah. And what Hilkiah does is he discovers a scroll that had literally been sitting in the temple gathering dust for years, if not decades. And he takes that scroll and he takes the scroll to King Josiah says, you're probably going to want to hear this. And we now know that that scroll was almost certainly a large portion of the book of Deuteronomy that's in our Bibles. And what happens is Hilkiah reads the scroll to King Josiah and 2 Chronicles 34, 19 tells us that Josiah hears these wor the words of scripture and he is absolutely devastated by what he hears. Because the scripture make, makes plain to him that, the peop, that he and the people simply were not living right. That they had violated the covenant God had made with him. That they were living in such disobedience and that because of that, they were under God's judgment. So to make a long story short, Josiah begins to lead his people in repentance. And for 13 years, he does this. 2 Chronicles 35 tells us that he gathers all the people together and they renew the covenant with God to say, God, we want to be your people. And it says that he renews the Passover, which for us, half a world away and 2,700 years later, it's hard for us to fully appreciate what a big deal it would have been for the Passover to be celebrated again. And it's during this time that Zephaniah is writing. But what we, and so you can imagine that Zephaniah's writing is sort of part of Josiah's broader kind of project to reform the people, to pull them away from their false worship so that they might worship their God. But what we find in the book of Zephaniah is that the people are simply too far gone. And so throughout this book, especially throughout the first two and a half chapters of this book, I'm just going to be real honest with you. There's a lot of bad news in the first two and a half chapters of Zephaniah. Not a lot of coffee cup verses to be found. I will wipe you away and utterly obliterate you. Like, no, right? A lot of images of judgment. A lot of these sorts of things. And, and listen, it, and, and it is worthwhile for us to understand these things, and, and I'll tell you why. Because even as us, again, 2,700 years later, half a world away, it, it begs us asking the question, why? Was God, who is so rich in, in steadfast love, who is slow to anger, why was he so provoked. Because we know this, that God is provoked to anger by things that hurt his people. So it's worth us looking at this book of Zephaniah and asking the question, why was God so provoked? Because if those things that were present in the people then are present in our hearts today, it's only going to hurt us. And it's only going to hurt the people that we love. So it's worth us exploring and understanding these things. But here's the thing. I told you that the book of Zephaniah is two and a half chapters, not a lot of good news. Here's the good news. It's three full chapters long. And in the final half of chapter three, there is this incredible shift. 
from this language of judgment to to promises of restoration and renewal. And what we're going to see is this, and if you're following along with with the app or with the the handout you received when you walked in, we're going to see this. I want to encourage you with this this morning, that God's grace has the last word. That God's grace has the last word. In fact, the title of this message comes from Zephaniah 3.17, from shame to praise. We're going to see that God is a God who takes our shame and turns it into praise. So that's where we're going this morning. Buckle up, hang on tight. We're going to get through these two and a half chapters together, and the end is going to encourage you, I promise. So here we go. Chapter one, starting in verse two. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. This is not a good day. You guys, not a good day right here. But once again, it begs us asking the question, why? Why was God so provoked? He was provoked for a lot of reasons. I want to show you three reasons out of the text. First, in verse 8, it says this, And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the kings and the king's sons, all who array themselves in foreign attire. And you might look at that and go, okay, so he's really mad because they're dressing up in like the clothes of other cultures. Like, what's the big deal there? And you have to understand, this was not some sort of like celebration of multiculturalism, but that's all, that's all well and good. That in this context, for the leaders to be dressing in the clothes of other nations was a way for them to be saying, we want to become like you. And more importantly, it's a way of them saying, we want to worship your gods, right? So it's a way of them expressing their desire for false worship. That's why God is so grieved by it. And then verse 9 On that day, I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. So God is grieved by the violence and the fraud that he sees in his people, and that's a pretty common theme throughout scripture, that God is opposed to those things. But then there's this thing about everyone who leaps over the threshold. What's that all about? Well, in that culture... The idea that when you entered a home that you would leap over the threshold of the house, that was a way of conjuring up goodwill from pagan gods. So think of it as sort of like an ancient, like, don't step on a cracker, you'll break your mama's back kind of a thing, right? But it was this silly little ritual that they were engaged in to try to conjure up again the goodwill of false gods, and it was a way for them to demonstrate their lack of allegiance to the God of Israel, And then verse 12, at that time, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and I will punish the men who are complacent. Those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do ill. That the complacency of the people grieves the heart of God. That there are those who are living in active rebellion and disobedience going after these false gods. And there are others who are just saying, you know, I don't really care. Because I don't think God's going to really do anything. And listen, as we look at that list, we have to understand something. Number one, like, I don't know. I get people talking to me all the time about different things they got going on. I've never had somebody come to me and say, you know, Brian, I'm just really struggling with Baal worship. Like, I'm just really drawn to it. Can you help me? 
right? We don't have like these sorts of false gods, like this is not a live issue in our culture today, but let's be very clear about one thing. The false gods in our culture look different, but they are just as prevalent. And they are competing for our affection in the same way that they competed for the affections of the people back there. And if you and I aren't careful, we live in a world, we live in a culture, we live in a country that is sick from idolatry of many kinds. And it exists in my heart and it exists in yours. So we can't just look at all these silly people hopping over things and dressing in clothes and this and that. Those same things exist in our hearts. We live in a culture of false gods. They just look different. And then the complacency question. I think for so many of us, we let this thought get into our head. I don't think any of us pursue it intentionally. But we just get to the point where we start to believe kind of passively, like, God's not really involved. God's not really doing anything. I don't need to give my attention to these things because God's not going to act. I'm just sort of on my own here. Again, I don't know that any of us seek that out, but we can fall into it passively. And it grieves God's heart, and I believe it's devastating for us. So, So that's chapter one. It's all of these different warnings of judgment and things of that nature. But then chapter two begins with this like little glimmer of hope that this is called to repentance that maybe there is some hope for those who would turn from their ways. Verse one, gather together. Yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff. By the way, did you catch that? God is calling his covenant people, Judah, shameless nation how far they've fallen. Before, continuing verse two, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord, seek the Lord, all you humble of the land who do his just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. God is saying to his people, Will you humble yourselves? Will you seek what is right? This is something we're going to see, something we see throughout the prophets, and it's something we're going to see throughout the book of Zephaniah, that God calls his people to humility. And listen, to be humble does not mean you're not strong. To be humble does not mean you're not gifted. To be humble does not mean you can't lead. To be humble does not mean you can't accomplish some good in the world. But to be humble just means you know who you are and you know who you're not. And for us to be humble means that we are not the final authority in our lives, that we live under the authority of a good and just and right Heavenly Father. And what gets these people off track so much is in their pride, and we're going to see this more in a minute. They forget that that's true. And then in the rest of chapter 2, what happens is God sort of turns his attention outside of Judah to the surrounding regions. That what is coming, this judgment that is coming, is not just for God's covenant people, but it's for the surrounding cultures as well. It says in verse four, for Gaza shall be deserted and Ashkelon shall become a desolation. And this next line is oddly specific to me. Ashdod's people shall be driven out at noon. So put that on the calendar, I guess. And Ekron shall be uprooted. And it goes on to list all of these different pagan nations around Judah who are going to experience the judgment of God. And once again, the question is why? 
The question is why? And there are a lot of different reasons, but the reasons can best be summed up by what we see in verse 10. This shall be their lot in return for their pride, because they taunted and boasted against the people of the Lord of hosts. That it is the pride of these nations that leads to their destruction. Now, I don't know how many of you were here a, long, a while ago when we did our, our, our teaching out of the book of Obadiah. And if you, if you remember that at all, the book of Obadiah is basically a, 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 a book of judgment against these people called the Edomites. And what we talked about then is the whole reason for their, their judgment was because of their pride. So we sort of looked at pride from a whole bunch of different angles then. But I just, I just want to draw out a few different things related to pride real quick today. That, that pride is so dangerous and pride is so devastating for so many different reasons. But one of the reasons is, is that when you and I give in to pride, we quit paying attention to the voices that we need to listen to if we're going to be healthy. We quit paying attention to the voices that we need to listen to if we're going to be healthy. And listen, that's really easy to do if you've had some success, if you've lived some life, if, you think if you're smart, you're talented, you receive some affirmation. It is so easy to stop listening. And I think another thing that pride does too, see this all the time, I've been in conversations about it, I'm in conversations about it all the time, like man, this is such a challenge in our, in our world, it's a challenge in my heart, what do we do about it? Is what pride does is it leads to sort of its evil cousin entitlement. That when pride gets a hold of our heart, we start to feel entitled. And I'll just tell you this right now. You can be entitled or you can be thankful. You cannot be both. And I will give you one guess at which one will better lead to your joy. Right? But once again, you live some life, you have some success, you start to feel entitled. Like I'm owed something by somebody. People need to treat me a, a certain way or I need this from everybody. And, or, and what happens is it just absolutely destroys our sense of gratitude. It can wreck relationships, it wrecks our effectiveness in so many different ways. And I know this is just, it is such an absolute cancer if it gets in our hearts. And I just remember, this is, I was thinking about this this week, reminded me of when I first moved up to this area. I don't know if you know my story, I'm just gonna share a little bit of it right now. Is So, so I was born and raised up here, but moved to Southern California for, for college and ended up living down there for 12 years, not all in college, don't worry. And we moved back up here, we moved back up here, and I'd worked at two churches down in Southern California, and when we moved to this area, my wife and I, we decided that, that we just know that the church you're a part of affects your family life so much. You, you guys know this to be true. So we just said, instead of me just kind of throwing out resumes and, and we'll just go where they'll take me, uh, we wanted to choose a church that we feel like God called us to, a church we felt like we could really invest in, and then I was just gonna start serving, and we were gonna just see what happens. So that was our big plan. That's the sort of thing you can do, by the way, when your wife has a good job. <laughs> so we did that. I was staying home with my then, you know, nine, 10 month old kid at the time. So we did that and we started attending Bridgeway and, and I got involved serving in the young adult ministry. I've been a young adult pastor in the past. So I, I got in touch with our, at the time, young adult pastor, a guy by the name of Ryan Haynes. I just hung out with him a couple weeks ago. We're still friends to this day. And I just started serving. I led a men's 
small group, and, and I just told Ryan, I said, hey, man, I don't need to lead anything. I just, I'm here to help you. I'm just, this is what I'm you know, trying to do. But just while I'm kind of waiting for God to open a door, I just want you to know I'm here to serve you. I think I understand what your life is like better than most. And whatever I can do to make it easier, I'm here. I'll pass out bulletins. I'll stack chairs, whatever. I just, I'm just here to help. So we, got, we, we became connected. He let me speak a few times in the young adult service, which was really cool. And, and then in due time, long story short, uh, an opportunity arose for me to come onto our staff in an itty bitty role for an itty bitty amount of money. And I couldn't have been happier. I was so excited to have the opportunity to come on the team, to get to start investing in people a little bit more intentionally. I was so thrilled at the opportunity. And this really cool thing happened when I got invited on the team. I got this thing called a key fob. Key fobs are amazing. I'll show you mine now. Right now, it used to be a keychain. Now, see, I, I switched from a thick wallet to a skinny wallet. Highly recommended, by the way. That, that one was free. But I got a little, my key fob's on the back of my wallet now, and now this thing's amazing. You put it up to doors, and beep, boop, and they open. It's amazing. So I got my little key fob, and what it did is it granted me access to the office. And I remember walking in, and if you ever saw the office at the old building, there was like a big like, section where there were a bunch of offices and cubicles, and then there was this other section that was like the office furniture graveyard, right? It's like something out of like a, like a horror scene in Toy Story or something. It's like, you know, chairs are this way and that, random partitions everywhere, little, it's like semi-level desk areas, you know, whatever. And I just remember walking in with my little backpack, beep, boop, door opens, I'm in, I'm like, I don't know where to go. I don't, I don't have a desk. I don't have a cubicle. I don't have anything. Well, I'll just, I'll just go to the office graveyard. And I found my little spot way in the corner, and I'm just doing my little work. Happy to be here, you know, and all of that. And I just remember, I, I, just, I don't know why, just God just spoke into my heart in that moment, that just that simple act, beep, boop, walking in the door, was just a reminder to me to be thankful. Beep, boop, God, thank you for the itty-bitty role, itty-bitty amount of money. Beep, boop, God, thank you that I get to be a part of what you're doing here. Spoke that to my heart those very first days. And, and, and here's the deal. Just, again, long story short, it's been, been, been over six years. I've had a, you know, it's a running joke on the staff. Six, six years, six different titles. You know, I, I've done a lot of different things around here. And just in a, in a position now where pretty much if anything's going wrong at Bridgeway, it's probably my fault somehow. So just... My bad, okay? But I just, I'm so blessed to have the opportunity to lead in some different ways and to invest in our staff and to speak to all of you. It is just, I, I'm so fortunate to get to do the things that I do. And still to this day, yesterday when I walked in the building at seven o'clock in the morning, this morning when I walked in the building at, I don't know, a little later than that, but still really, whatever. Beep boop. Thank you, God, that I get to do this. Beep boop. Thank you, God, that I get to do this. On the incredible days, and there are so many incredible days, that little beep boop just reminds me, God, thank you. On the devastating days, and I have those, I have some of those this week, just walking with some of you through just the pain you're experiencing, beep boop, God, thank you that I get to do this. And I just remember, I feel like in those early days, God spoke it to my heart to say, Brian, no matter what happens with you, whether you stay in this itty bitty role for the rest of your life, or I expand the responsibilities and opportunities to serve you have, whatever happens, don't you dare for a second think you're entitled. Beep boop, thank you God that I get to do this. And here's why I share that story. <laughs> 
Not so that you can all say, wow, that's very impressive how good at not being entitled you are, right? Like, that's not the point. But I just wonder for some of you, for some of you, is there a way that somehow pride has gotten in? Because why do I take this so seriously? Because I know my silly, prideful heart, right? That pride has gotten into your heart, and it's led to some entitlement. And it's stealing your joy. And it's stealing your thankfulness. It's stealing the wonder of the things that God lets you be a part of. And maybe you don't have a key fob. But maybe there's some part of your day setting the coffee in the morning, pulling into the parking spot at work. And not just work, family stuff too. Waking up your kids, dropping them off from school, texting them, whatever. That maybe God might use that to speak to your heart, to renew that sense of thankfulness and to say, God, I'm not entitled to this, but it's a gracious gift to the good stuff and the hard stuff. I just wonder if some of us need that. It's all throughout the Old Testament, pride, 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 entitlement, entitlement, entitlement. It's brought up and it's devastating. It affects people today, but the good news for you, the good news for me is God wants to free us from it. So maybe we might pray, God, where have I become entitled? Would you renew my sense of thankfulness? So that's chapter two. It's all of these nations that are going to be condemned for their pride. And as if that, as if, as if Judah's thinking, okay, great. Well, the attention is now to all of these foreign people. I guess maybe we're off the hook. No, the attention goes back to them in verse one of chapter three. Woe to her who is a rebellious and defiled who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Once again, they're so far gone, they've become an oppressing city. She listens to no voice. This is what pride does. I want to ask you the question, what voice are you listening to? Don't listen to all of them. There are a lot of critics out there that do not have your best interest at heart, but who do you listen to? Do you listen to the voice of God? Do you listen to the people that are on your team that love you the most? She accepts no correction. Once again, you don't need to listen to correction from everybody out there. But who is there in your life that when they speak, they have your ear, that you are humble enough to receive their correction? Are you willing to receive correction from God's word? Are you really willing to receive correction from life, wise counsel? She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Very simply, where, where are we trusting? At the end of the day, street level, what are we really trusting? It's a question throughout the Old Testament. Verse three, her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. The officials and the judges were hoarding things for themselves, taking things for themselves and leaving nothing for anybody else. Verse four, her prophets are fickle and treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. The people that were supposed to be leading the people spiritually were totally compromised and totally corrupt. And here's just another Old Testament theme. We've seen it again and again. I just want to draw your attention to it one more time. Is that God seems to be especially provoked to anger by wicked and corrupt leaders. That leadership in the Bible is a really, really big deal because leaders that know their place, leaders that want to honor the Lord, leaders that have a heart for their people can be so empowering and so effective. And leaders that are selfish, leaders that are about themselves, leaders that want to domineer others, leaders that use their power to hurt, they do so much damage in that culture and in ours. 
And so many of us in this room, we lead in different capacities. Maybe you're a leader somehow here at Bridgeway. Maybe you're a leader in your organization, your company, or you volunteer somewhere and you're a leader. Maybe you're a leader in your family. I think most there are more leaders in this room than we realize. And more of us are leaders. You might think you're not, and you probably are. Maybe you just have influence in your social circle. I always just want to ask the question. It's a question I ask myself. What's your leadership for? What's the point of it? Is it for you? Is it for you to work out your own insecurity? Is it for your own ego? Is it for your own pocketbook? Is it for for your own attention? Because if that's all it is, first of all, you're never going to be happy. Second of all, you're going to hurt people. You're going to hurt people. So again, my question to you is, what's your leadership for? Is it about empowering others? Is it about pointing them to someone who is bigger and greater than you? Is it about seeking the thriving of the people in your care? Something our senior pastor Lance has said from this stage and that I can tell you as someone who's close to him, he models so well. He says this, that Christian leadership is servanthood. And if you are a Christian and you lead anywhere, that is Christian leadership. That he says, the higher you get in leadership, the more people you have to serve. Understand that in God's economy, leadership is servanthood. And leadership is stewardship. It is a sacred entrustment that God has given you. So enjoy it by all means. But there's that question, what is it for? What is it for? God is especially provoked by leaders who aren't doing their job. So that goes on for a few more verses in verse 3. But then... Verse nine, good job everybody, we made it through the tough stuff. There is this incredible shift from this language of judgment to this incredible language of purification, restoration, and hope. Verse nine, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Those who use their speech to honor foreign gods, they're going to be purified to honor the one true God, and they're going to serve him to do his work. Verse 11, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Verse 12. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. See, that is God's heart for us, that we would be humble, that we would know who we are, that we would know who he is, that we would seek refuge in him, that we would let him provide for us the care he so longs to provide, the care he can so capably provide. It reminds me of a verse from last week, Nahum chapter one, verse seven. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him that that is God's promise to us, that if you will humble yourself, take refuge in me, I will take care of you. And it says, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall all graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. 
God, God says, when you're with me, you will not need to fear anymore. I've said this before and I will say it again because it is an epidemic in our culture once again. There are so many people who are selling fear in our culture today. And the reason why there are so many of them is because we keep buying it. They're selling fear. And what happens is we get all, all, all bent out of shape because of our fear and it messes us up in a thousand different ways. That's why God says over and over and over again, when you're with me, you don't need to fear. When you're listening to the fear peddler, yeah, you're probably gonna be, wanna be afraid. But when you're with me, not me, God, you know what I mean. You have no reason to fear, God says, right? And what does he say? He says that there will do no injustice. I think so many of us are so often in our culture, injustice comes in part from fear that we don't care about justice anymore because we're afraid and we'll hurt people and we'll do things that we know aren't right just to relieve our fear. And he says they'll speak no lies. So much deceit in our culture today, once again, it comes from fear. And God says over and over again, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid when you're with me. And it just gets better from here. And before we get to the really good stuff, we have to just ask the question. We're going to read some incredible promises here in just a moment. And we've got to ask the question, do, do they even apply to us? To what extent do we, as, as 21st century Christ followers, to what extent can we claim these promises as our own? Because we want to be good Bible readers. Well, after all, we're reading someone else's mail here. And this was written to, to the Jewish people all this time ago, God's covenant people. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a, on a pretty stable limb here and guess that most of us in this room are not Jews, that we're Gentiles. So what does this have to say to us? Well, I think the Holy Spirit knew that we were going to ask that question because he inspired the Apostle Paul to address it in a few different places. One of them is Galatians chapter 3, where he says this, starting in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all, what, one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The Bible says that in Christ, we are heirs to the promises that he has made. So when God makes promises to his covenant people, guess what? We're part of it. We're part of it by faith in Christ. So, so here it goes, verse 14. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. This is going to be good right here. I'm just warning you right now. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Anybody else think that's good news, that God takes away our judgment? Right? The Psalm 103 says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does God remove our transgressions from us. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is often distant in a faraway land. No, no, he is in your midst. And you will never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Weakening hands was a sign of fear and uncertainty. And here's where it really, if this gets too good, grab the person next to you. Verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. What does the New Testament say? Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14, the word became flesh and what? Dwelt among us. 
Romans 8, if you are in Christ, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead will give life to to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. I don't know your situation, but I know that God is with you. That God is in our midst, a mighty one who will save. Not only is he with us, he's capable, he's strong, he's our defender, he protects us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. And then I love, this is the line that I love the most. He will quiet you by his love. We're so anxious, we're so fearful. We got, there's so much, we live in an uncertain world, I get that. God's heart for us is that we would let him quiet us with his love. The, the, The little baby screaming in the middle of the night season of life is not so far behind me that I've forgotten it. I'll get there eventually, but I'm not there yet. (laughs) but I just remember you get up, you pick up the child and you wipe your eyes, tired and everything else. Quiet them with your love. (laughs) And if I, if you, if I who am imperfect in a thousand ways can quiet my child with my love, how much more does your heavenly father, again, I don't know your situation, whatever you've got, whatever you're anxious about, how much more does your heavenly father want to quiet you with his love? And then it gets gets better from there. He doesn't just just stay quiet for long because he will exalt over you with loud singing. How does God feel about you? How does God feel about you? I don't know. You tell me. The God who spoke the universe into existence sings over you with love. God spoke the universe into existence and he sings over you with love. I just think so many of us, we just think, man, if I was face to face with God and God was gonna tell me what he really thought of me, I think a lot of us maybe subconsciously, we're we're like, no, I'll pass on that. That's a little scary, right? that God would sit down and be like, oh, so glad you're here. I've got a list. Things we got to work on, right? No. God's first move towards you is love, right? God, God, God exalts over you with singing. And you might say, well, wait a second, Brian. Well, what about sin? What about holiness? What about sanctification and discipleship? Don't those things matter? And I say, yes, absolutely they do. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 2 says, don't you understand? It is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. But let us not forget the kindness. That God transforms us with love. So often in our culture, what do we use? We use guilt, we use shame, we use manipulation. We use all these things to try to kind of manipulate circumstances and and people. And God says, no, no, no. Love, that is my first move towards you. And my grace is the last move towards you. Verse 18, I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Verse 19, behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the people of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, said the Lord. Verse 19, I love that verse. 
in that culture as in ours and in every other culture in the history of the world. It's the poor, the defenseless that suffer most under wicked leadership. And we know, you look at the life of Jesus, you look at so many places in scripture, God has an extra heart for the, for the lame, for the oppressed, for the, for the outcast. Jesus went after them, God goes after them. And, and God says to those in, in, in Zephaniah chapter three, he says, I am gonna take your shame and I'm gonna turn it into praise. And I just wonder how many of us today, if we're being real honest, we're walking in here and we're carrying shame. And we're saying, okay, that all sounds well and good, but not my shame. That's not going to work for my shame. It runs too deep. I've been carrying it so long. And listen, I don't know your situation, but I know this, that if the God of heaven can turn the death of his son on the cross, the most shameful of all situations, if God can turn that into salvation for all who would believe, God could take your shame and he can turn it into praise. I need you to hear that this morning. And come on, so many of us, we carry it. I remember hearing a while ago, this just has stuck with me for so long. I remember this, this, this popular Christian author, he was sharing, he'd just come out with a book and I haven't read it, but I'm sure it's great. He's awesome. And he said this, he said this in an interview. He says, I have hundreds of five-star reviews on Amazon. I have one one-star review. Guess which review I know every single word of? The one. So many of us, you've had words of shame spoken to you. I've had words of shame spoken to me and they bury themselves, they're so insidious, they bury themselves in our hearts. And we need to understand on the authority of God's word that God does not motivate us with shame. God does not reinforce our shame. God says, bring that shame to me. Every ounce of shame you have was paid for on the cross. Bring that shame to me and I will turn it into praise that my grace has the final word for you. God, God doesn't simply tolerate you. God doesn't simply accept you. God doesn't simply say, well, I've said all are welcome, so I guess you can come in. No, no, no. God, if your faith is in Christ, he delights over you. He welcomes you into his family. The last word over your life is not the word of grace. It is not the word of anxiety. It is not the word of fear. It is not the word of self-doubt. It is not the word of self-loathing. It is the word of God's grace. His grace, his grace, his grace. There is grace for you, I'm telling you. <laughs> and here's the best part. He doesn't just speak it over you. He sings it. I don't know what it sounds like when God sings, but I'll bet it's pretty awesome. It's for you. It's for you. Shame does not have the final word. Can I have the prayer team come on up? I was speaking with a member of our prayer team before the four o'clock service yesterday sharing with her what the message was about and she was going to pray for me. And she said, so much of what we hear on the prayer team is shame. People just locked up in the weight of their shame. So what I want to say to you is, is if you walked in here today and you're carrying shame, I just want to invite you, I'm going to pray for everybody and we'll dismiss and, you know, if you can get help with stacking chairs, that'd be, that'd be super helpful but when I say amen, maybe you need to come up here and you need to let one of these men and women pray the gospel over you. 
that they need to remind you of God's love for you, that they need to remind you that whatever shame you have in your heart, God can turn it into praise, that God can renew and restore all things. Maybe you walked in here today with something that is weighing heavily on your heart and it has nothing to do with anything I have talked about. These men and women would be just as happy to pray for you in that, help you leave here prayed up and encouraged. So let me just pray for all of us and then we'll be dismissed. And if, and you, if you could help us with chairs, we'd sure appreciate it. And then these men and women would love to pray for you if that'd be a blessing for you. God, we thank you that you are a God who turns our shame into praise. That God, you invite us to be people who are not locked up in our own pride, in our own righteousness, in our own self-assurance, but that rather you invite us to humble, yourself under, hum, humble ourselves under your love. That you invite us to place our faith in your son, Jesus Christ, in the good that he has accomplished on our behalf. That you invite us to receive forgiveness and that you then will make us a praise. That you rejoice over us in singing. That you quiet us with your love. So God, I pray for myself and every single one in here that where there is shame in our heart, would you by the power of your spirit root it out so that we might live lives of love, so that we might live lives of confident, humble joy, knowing that we are loved by you, knowing that grace has the final word, knowing that we can use our gifts, we can serve the world, we can seek to bless other people because you are with us and we don't have to be sidelined by shame any longer. Thank you for Jesus who took all of our shame so that all that is left for us is favor. May we walk in that favor. May we walk in that wholeness. May we walk in that whole life that you so desire for us. And may it all be for your glory. We love you and everyone who agrees prayed in Jesus' name. Amen.